Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains discussions on extreme violence and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season four, episode four, and we're so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1987 neo-western vampire film Near Dark. It was written by Catherine Bigelow and Eric Redd and directed by Catherine Bigelow. It stars Adrian Pazdar, Jenny Wright, Bill Paxton, and Lance Henriksen. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause the show and watch it first. As of this recording, though, Near Dark is out of print and not available to stream online. You can purchase it through third-party sellers online or at your local used DVD and record store, if you even have one. I had to purchase this one on eBay last week, and luckily it came in time for the review. Yeah. So again, we suggest that you see the film first, but if you can't, well, I guess keep listening. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's up to you. Still here? Okay. Let's get this morning started. So in the mid-80s, Catherine Bigelow and Eric Redd wrote two films together on spec. Now, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term spec, a spec script is a non-commissioned and unsolicited screenplay. It is usually written by a screenwriter who hopes to have the script optioned or eventually purchased by a producer or a studio. So Bigelow and Red wrote two spec scripts together. One was a modern-day Western, and the other one was a thriller called Undertow. Bigelow and Red had in mind that they would both write these scripts together, and then she would direct one and he would just direct one. Hmm. Bigelow wanted to film the Western movie, but when she and her co-writer found financial backing for a Western difficult to obtain, they decided to try mixing the Western with another, more popular genre. Bigelow wanted to add horror into the mix because she felt that both genres had a similar sense of romanticism. I don't know if this film would have worked if it wasn't a vampire film, to be really honest. I agree. So Bigelow did some research on different types of horror after reading Bram Stoker's Dracula and an article on a very terrible skin condition called Xeroderma pigmentosum? Wow. Or XP. And she decided that vampires were the perfect fit for her Western. What the heck is that? So XP is um, you can only stand in the sun for so long before you start getting blisters, just like how they do in the film. So at the time, executive producer Ed Feldman of FM Entertainment was looking for a low-budget original script when he received Near Dark from co-writer Eric Red, and he loved it. Now, one of the great things about writing spec is that you have 100% creative control over it. So one of the conditions of the script's purchase was that Bigelow be the director of the film. So Ed Feldman sat down with Bigelow, and even though he found her, quote, very intelligent (laughs) and capable, 
She had never directed a film on her own before, and this was apparently a huge concern for him. God. Yep. So the last film she worked on was in 81, and it was a Willem Dafoe movie called The Loveless, and she co-wrote it and co-directed it. Wow, get out of town. I didn't know that she was a part of that project. Oh, really? That's cool. You've yeah. Seen the, I've never seen the movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's awesome. So um, Feldman <laughs> wanted to make the film because he loved the script, but he didn't want Biglow to direct it because this would be her first solo venture. So he decided to make another deal with Bigelow. He said, quote, I'm going to give you three days. And if this production doesn't go smoothly during these three days, I'm going to pull you from the picture. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He's a big jerk face. Three days. (laughs) I feel like one, that's not enough time. And two, like, can I just say that? We talked about this in our Jaws episode, mm-hmm. but freaking Steven Spielberg, and this was his second film that was going to be in theaters. Mm-hmm. So he had directed a few before this, but like he was also a relatively new filmmaker when yeah. he made Jaws. He brought that movie 100 days over schedule. Yeah. And he spent millions upon millions of more dollars and he never got fired. And I'm not saying that he should have. I mean, I I think I would have if I was a producer, I would have fired him. Yeah. Luckily, that film was a huge success, but yeah. for his sake. But I just feel like if that had been Bigelow, it like she would have been fired. Like I think she would have been fired. Yeah, and I think she also would have had a really hard time for any future productions too. Right? So. Exactly. Yeah. So baloney. I mean, she was just like, yeah. So um, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll do that. And I was like, <gasps> girl. I mean. Okay. But I mean, she, of course, there was nothing wrong with the production. Bigelow not only stayed on schedule, but she exceeded everyone's expectations on set. She was 35 at the time. This was her first. Yes. So she was older than I am. This was her first film, the single venture that she did. So wild. Yeah. So Near Dark was independently produced on a lean $6 million budget. But due to the failures of its bankrupt distributor, DEG Entertainment, nobody knew about it. So it failed at the box office, only earning $3.4 million. Near Dark was also a pretty gritty film, and I don't think it helped that everybody was already obsessed with uh, Joel Schumacher's vampire film, The Lost Boys, which came out. I was going to say, yeah. It's not the exact same feel, but it kind of is. You know, you're dealing with like a group of outcasts, blah, blah, blah. And it's very, like you said, gritty. So yeah, and they I, already had that kind of. And Well, yeah. And I mean, this is an episode about Lost Boys. But I do want to say that Lost Boys has very like teen kind of aspect to it. Very yes. like hunky-dory kind of like teen film. And, and Near Dark is nothing like that. No, so I think yeah. that was a... It was a more mainstream film, and I think that it, that caught everybody's attention, so nobody really paid attention to Near Dark. Mm-hmm. So Near Dark sank into the abyss, but was soon revived when HBO bought the rights and released it on home video. Nice. Near Dark is a criminally underrated cult classic that inspired such films and TV shows as From Dusk Till Dawn and True Blood. It also played a huge role in the inception of the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade. It's fair to say that the film has a number of shortcomings, but what we all can agree on is so perfectly summed up in this review of the film from 1987. Jay Boyer of the Orlando Sentinel says, quote, Long after the picture ends, you're left with potent half-images, 
strong but vague impressions that resemble the remains of dreams. Hmm. So with that said, Abby, (laughs) could you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. One night, a young man named Caleb meets May, an attractive young drifter who catches his eye as she wanders around his small country town. She's mysterious, but he's immediately smitten and offers to drive her home. What he doesn't know is that she is a vampire who has been roaming the country with a group of ragtag undead drifters like her who have formed a family out of misfits from different decades. She bites Caleb, and he's thrown into her lifestyle without any explanation or reason. Meanwhile, Caleb's father and sister search high and low for him. But when Caleb refuses to kill in order to feed himself, he leaves May and her family and returns home, having his father perform a blood transfusion to turn him back into a human. But the family of vampires angrily go on the hunt for Caleb, feeling betrayed and threatening to turn his younger sister. Caleb defeats the family one by one until May is the only one left alive, and he turns her back into a human, and we are left to assume that May begins a new life with Caleb. Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the Bechdel test. No, it doesn't pass, which is too bad because there are females do talk in this. It's a mostly male cast, which, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And they do talk about stuff, but a lot of it revolves around either Caleb. Yeah. Or Caleb's dad. Mm Mm-hmm. So Nancy's dream team test, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Yes to all three. That's exciting. It is. Was the final girl a person of color? No. In fact, there were only two people of color in this film, and they were both victims. Mm. And I think it's also interesting to point out that out of the surprisingly high number of deaths in this film, only three of them are female. Wow. Yeah, and I believe there's over 10 deaths in this film. Because mm-hmm. normally in horror films, there are men and women who both die, right? But mm-hmm. it's mostly women who are victims. Yeah. This is one of those rare horror films where it's mostly male victims. Hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. All right. Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in the film? No. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about Catherine Bigelow first. So, she is, as of this recording, the only woman to win an Academy Award for Best Director, as well as the only female director whose film has won a Best Picture Award. So wild. She was also a former painter and a graduate of the Columbia University's Graduate Film School. So cool. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense. I mean, she wasn't the cinematographer, but I can definitely see how she help direct and frame certain shots oh yeah feel like you know you're watching so reminds me of david lynch kind of reminds me mm-hmm. of like a painting on screen like yes. a, like every image is like a, a painting or yeah. a f- photograph or something even too yeah like when we were watching this together i was like this movie looks like a tumblr post yes <laughs> <laughs> it's very like dreamy and kind of fuzzy absolutely so, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, according to the book, Our Vampires Ourselves, it is said that she is the first female creator of cinematic vampires. So, before her, there was no female director or writer, I think, of a vampire film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head would be, like, Catherine Hardwick. She directed the first Twilight film, but right. other than that, 
I can't. I honestly, there's got to be some out there, but I don't know. I think that uh, you guys let us know. Yeah. Is there any other female directors and writers who have created cinematic vampires? And we don't mean novels because obviously there's lots of women vampire uh, novel writers, but Hmm. I don't know about movies. Interesting. Let us know what you guys think. Yeah. Okay, so Catherine Bigelow said in her 2010 Academy Awards speech, quote, the secret to directing is collaborating, unquote. Now, of course, she's talking about The Hurt Locker, which was her film that won Best Picture and and she won for Best Director. Mm -hmm. But I think it's safe to say that this was something that she always had in mind. In the behind the scenes interviews on the Near Dark DVD, Bill Paxson, Lance Henriksen, and Jeanette Goldstein mentioned how they created their own backstories to how their characters were embraced or changed. And they would share them with Bigelow and be like, does this sound good? Does this sound like something that my character would do? And she was very much into making her actors feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And even though like the characters aren't fleshed out in a sense where like we as the audience don't really know much about them. The actors had this whole backstory about everything that had happened to them. That's like, so cool. Yeah. Jeanette Goldstein's character, Diamondback, she said that she was from like the Dust Bowl era. Ah, okay. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. So that's why her hair is like dyed blonde because mm-hmm. it was like from that time period, right? Like that platinum blonde look. Yeah. And even though it's like crazy, but she's like, well, that's why I wanted my hair to be like that. Yeah. So a lot of them kind of picked out like their, not necessarily their costumes, but I guess like their style. Like this is what I want to look like. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And, you know, Bigelow, I think in a sense is so humble because so many directors, I think, have a vision and they want to stick with it. And that's what it is. And Mm-hmm. But I think that she um, she really wanted this to be a group effort. And I think that was to her benefit. Yeah. Well, how cool and interesting, too, that like everybody has their own story. So they kind of didn't technically have a hand in writing the film, but kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that I'm going to be a nerd, but this is a super similar to Vampire the Masquerade, where you pick your character, your you know, you pick what type of character you want to be and you have full control over the type of character that you're playing. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny how this movie inspired that game and that's exactly what they did as actors. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. So a lot of people think that James Cameron, the director of Aliens and Avatar and Terminator, he actually had just made Aliens, which had Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, and Jeanette Goldstein. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have said in what I saw in like articles and stuff on YouTube that he had a role in casting her film. Yeah. Because they were all in that film. And that's actually not true. So that's a common misconception because James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow were kind of an item during this time. Ah. A lot of people thought that he had a role in it. Hmm. So uh, Bill Paxton, who plays Severin, he shared the script with Lance Henriksen who plays Jesse, and Bigelow auditioned all three actors from Aliens 
And then she contacted James Cameron to see if he minded her using so many of his actors from Aliens. Oh. And he was like, whatever, sure. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he had this like thing where he like liked to monopolize characters. Like he was like, or like not characters, but like actors. Yeah. So I think it was kind of like she felt like she had to ask his permission, which I thought was really weird. That's strange. Yeah. But he he didn't suggest anything or do anything. So that's a common misconception. Hmm. All right. So vampire films in 1987 had already become trendy. So thanks to the success of the 1985 film Fright Night and of course 1987's The Lost Boys released Mm. a few months earlier uh, before Near Dark, people were already talking about the modern vampire film. Yeah. But one key difference Near Dark has from Fright Night and Lost Boys and really any other vampire film even before them, is that there are no gothic elements in Near Dark. Mm -hmm. And this is a quote from Bigelow in a 1988 interview for the magazine Cinema Fantastique. (laughs) In an effort to sort of modernize the material, to update it and make it contemporary, we got rid of all the gothic aspects of vampire mythology. The teeth, the bats, holy water, crosses, mirrors, all of that. We just kept the most salient aspects. They burn up in sunshine, they must drink blood to live, they live forever, bullets don't hurt them, and they're very strong. Then we set them in the Midwest and used aspects of a Western shootout, showdowns at high noon, only in this case, it's high midnight. So, like, the only thing that I would say that connects to, like, gothic stuff is that May says something similar to Dracula. Like, Dracula says, listen to them, children of the night, which mm-hmm. music they make, whatever. Yeah. May says, listen to the night, listen hard, it's so bright, it will blind you, hear the night, it's death. And that was, like, the only thing I really noticed that was very gothic about the whole thing was, like, what she said there. Yeah. But Bigelow wanted to keep the logic behind vampirism very simple. And this almost makes it more frightening. What do you think? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because I feel like a lot of uh, vampire films overdo it and it's like it's too much. It's oversaturated and you're like, oh, God. But this, I feel like, makes it a little bit more believable. Like you could actually see this kind of scenario happening because, I mean, there are drifters like this. Who have gone around and like murdered people. So I mean adding that element wouldn't be that like crazy I guess. It's it's less silly. Yes. Yeah that's exactly it. Like it makes you take it seriously. So. Yeah I mean like you think about um, what we do in the shadows. <laughs> you know and I don't think they ever mention near dark in what we do in the shadows. I'm sure they've all seen it because they love vampire films but. They mostly make fun of, like, Lost Boys and um, Interview with a Vampire, like, that type of stuff, you know, and they make fun of, like, the gothic part of it, where Mm -hmm. Near Dark, you can't really make fun of because it's, like, it's too real, almost. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's yucky. (laughs) It's yucky, yeah. Uh, And even the word vampire is never mentioned in this film so wild it's yeah it's it's insane it's awesome it's kind of like like the people in this town don't know that vampires are a thing or even like part of any folklore it's like they've never heard of them that's so true so they can't really like put a name to it because they're like i have no freaking clue what you are yeah so 
Good Morning Nancy is proudly sponsored by Recess Coffee. We wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans. And the great part is, is that each batch of coffee is locally, artisanally roasted, and it comes from fair trade farmers. Gracie, what's your favorite blend? Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum! Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. So Fright Night and the Lost Boys also deal with like fatherless families Mm -hmm. where the monster in these films is sort of the replacement figure in that story, like the anti-dad. Yeah. And Near Dark also deals with family, but in a really different way. Yeah. There isn't a lack of fathers in this. There's almost too many. There are too many. (laughs) There's the father of the day, Caleb's biological father Mm -hmm. and then the father of the night his adoptive adoptive father yeah and the word home is mentioned in this film about 22 times wow which is a lot yeah so this idea of your father figure and your home is a huge deal Mm -hmm. what do you think of that well it kind of speaks to the social roles of parenting at the time Mm -hmm. like in the 80s there were there was like a large movement of people coming out as gay and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of um I guess tension about two males or two females raising a child Mm. and how people would complain about, oh, there's no balance there in that relationship. And like you have to have a mother and a father and that's it. It's not going to work any other way. So I think this film really like envelops that fear that people had of like having two males raise another male, maybe. Yes, and I actually just thought of this. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for expanding on that. Yeah. Um, so even though like May's family is like the intentional family, right? Yeah. In that family, at least there's a mother and a father, right? right? It's Jesse and Diamondback, mm-hmm. where Caleb's human family is just a single dad. Yeah. So it's a, it's a one parent household. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, so what? family is best for him right is it the mom and dad family which murders people (laughs) yikes or is it the single father yeah (laughs) like (laughs) well and there i don't think it's mentioned what happens to caleb's mother no they never mention her so they don't say if like she just up and left or if she passed away it's really it's kept vague Mm -hmm. and i think that's really interesting too is like not knowing the reason why he's a single father right it's just kind of there yeah exactly 
going back to the word home, mm-hmm. uh, unlike most vampire films where our characters like have to travel to distant lands, like freaking Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I was on my way to Budapest. <laughs> That's probably my favorite line of that whole film. (laughs) Good God. Oh, my Lord. So there's no, like, traveling to distant lands or, like, vampires coming from Transylvania to England or something. And Mm -hmm. uh, these vampires are very stationary. And I don't think that's... I don't know if stationary is the right word. They're stationary in the country. Right. They're obviously on, like, a road trip kind of thing. Like, they're constantly on the move. Mm -hmm. But they're in the most American place in America, which is the Midwest. Right. And it's so, I don't know. I think that's so interesting that there aren't even vampires from another country that are in this. It's all U.S. born and raised vampires. Well, here's the thing. And this is another social aspect of this movie. Okay. People are so afraid of foreigners coming to America and they're so scared of outsiders but what they don't realize is that there are people within our own country who are much 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 worse I don't know I just feel like it speaks to like what's going on as far as like accepting immigrants into our country and people who are seeking asylum and everything there are people here who are just as bad so it's so f- crazy that this movie freaking came out in 87. And it's still relevant. And it's so relevant that it hurts. Yeah. Okay, so let's kind of talk more about uh, the family of the night yeah. in this, right? So there's Jesse, there's Diamondback, there's Severin, and there's Homer, and then May. Mm-hmm. And they seem like the nuclear family, right? They're an intentional family. Yeah. But there's a father, a mother, an older son, a middle daughter, and a younger son type thing a sort of younger sort son. Of, well yeah we'll talk about homer in a minute Yikes. yeah <laughs> gross but like what do they represent like do they represent like the new south that's like holding on to the old south maybe yeah so jesse has the confederate flag like sewed into his jacket okay <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So Caleb at one point asks him, Jesse, how old are you? And he goes, let's just say I fought for the South and we lost. (laughs) We lost the war of Northern aggression. (laughs) God. So they're all freaking old. Like Jesse, I think, is the oldest out of all of them. Yeah. uh, Because he seems to be the leader of the pack. Yeah. But I mean, this to me is such a, a, a clear representation of people who are still holding on to the past Mm -hmm. who are either from the south or i mean you and i live in upstate new york yeah there are plenty of people here (laughs) in new york state who fly the confederate flag who obviously don't really have a grasp of reality or history And what it actually means. Yeah. And so I think it's a little unfair to say that it's just the South because being from, you know, upstate New York, Mm -hmm. we see a lot of people who fly this flag even in a northern state. Right. There's a lot of research that we've done here where it says that this family could represent the South. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's almost that's an unfair statement. This could mean anybody who's holding on to those values of hatred. Yeah. I'm going to say it. I'm probably going to 
make people mad, but no, it's okay. Let them be mad. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Shouldn't apologize. No. But I think that this is, you know, this, this is a flag that represents hatred. It does. And you can argue it any way you want, but your opinion is wrong. So, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's irrelevant. Get with the times. So, you know, this could easily mean people who, you know, um, they, they hold on to what happened after the Civil War. And they're the ones who, in the freaking 60s and 70s, who wanted to erect statues of Robert E. Lee because they all felt threatened Yikes. by people getting rights. <laughs> well, and it's also very interesting that Jesse is immortal. So it's like those values kind of stay immortal. And it's so ingrained in that culture down south but also everywhere else because it was such a huge part of our history. And I think that while it's not great that those values, quote unquote, live on and on, it's important that we don't forget about them because once we do, that's when it's going to come back around and like bite us in the ass, basically. So I think that's it's interesting that she wrote his character that way. You're right. It is immortal Mm -hmm. and it is living on. Yeah. And it's frightening that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's living on in such violent people. Yes. So this could also, like, if we want to talk about, like, what was going on during, like, Bigelow's era when she wrote this, mm-hmm. and the Reagan era, I should say. Yeah. Christopher Charette's essay, The Horror Film in Neoconservative Culture, he says about Near Dark, quote, the punk slash redneck aspect of the vampire clan is a reactionary renovation of the Dracula story. Mm-hmm. The vampire is no longer the parasitical aristocrat, but the predatory lower class element causing trouble for its own, unquote. Mm. So he feels that Bigelow was like, there are people like this. This is the Reagan era, like this is what I'm going to write about, which is so, this is why I'm wondering, like, when did she decide to add in the vampire aspect of it? Because was this always her intention to sort of have that sort of reactionary idea? I mean, maybe it was like with the Western aspect, but I feel like having vampires in there is so reminiscent of people in the 80s who were threatened by urban Mm -hmm. society. And, you know, because from what I understand, in the Reagan era, it was promoted that people of color were stealing, like, welfare stuff. Yeah. And, like, they were, like, on drugs and they needed all this welfare money. And so then the poor white people were suffering because of, of black people. Right. It was a which distraction. Which is total bullshit. Wow. That's not Well, and part of me was also wondering, too, like, was she trying to write something that spoke to like the political and like socioeconomic climate of the time but she couldn't really get anyone's attention because it was just another western so she used vampires to kind of get the attention of people and be like oh wow that's kind of different like that's not something that you see every day yeah i wish it could have been a fly on the wall to kind of figure out like where she was and what she was thinking Mm -hmm. when she was writing this yeah but i i'm also wondering if maybe this film demonizes those of the lower class Mm -hmm. and i'd like to think that it makes us understand like how the other half lives but in a weird way it almost makes it worse Mm -hmm. um because of caleb's reaction to being turned into a 
a vampire, he's super repulsed and all he wants to do is get home the moment he kind of lands in the midst of this family. Right. If you want to look at it in that sense, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's kind of like two sides of the coin here. Like you're dealing with this, I guess, sort of poverty-stricken family who are the vampires who are like leeching off of everyone else. But then you have Caleb who is like upper class like white family who yeah, doesn't middle, really he's middle class i think like he kind of preys on may mm-hmm. until he finds out like oh she's kind of like she's kind of a garbage person i don't really want to be a part of this family kind of thing right so that kind of crossed my mind too when i was watching it because personally like i i like caleb's character but there was a couple scenes where I was like, oh, I don't know if I really like vibe with how he's feeling right now. <laughs> so that's actually really true. Like if you want to look at it from the a different aspect where the vampires are aren't bad guys, they're more just like anti heroes, maybe. Right. You can kind of see like him being like super judgy. Yeah. About their life. And he's like, I don't agree with anything that you guys believe in. Like yeah. you all suck. Yeah. Wow. That was a nice dad joke. Sorry, I didn't I actually did not mean it. I don't believe it. But okay. I mean the flip side of that though too, like, is that I personally think that Americans have this really bad habit of wanting to change people and change their culture completely. And I'll give you kind of an example. The brand Tom's shoes. Okay. They're Uh, I'm being very critical here, but their whole gimmick is that you buy a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes to someone who, quote unquote, needs a pair of shoes. These countries, though, that they go into and give these products to, that's not how these people are. They're not westernized. That's not how they live. So I think here in our country, we are so afraid of people who are different that we're like, mm, I don't really want you to do that here. I'm, that's not our culture, even though we're a melting pot and it shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. I think that this movie has a lot of those elements where Caleb is like, this is not how it should be. Like, I don't like this. I don't like living on the road. I don't like he doesn't come I don't out like li- say it. I don't but- like living in a world where I'm constantly in danger because they are yeah they're which fair enough like I don't think anybody really wants to live like that unless you're like a real thrill seeker (laughs) (laughs) or again like unless it's how you've been raised so yeah I just thought that was kind of an interesting piece okay so let's talk a little bit about toxic masculinity (laughs) Or fragile Ugh. hyper-masculinity. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Fragile! <laughs> Holy crap. So, um, we mentioned Homer at the beginning of this episode. Ugh. Homer is possessive and creepy, and he's old. He's not a little kid as, you know, he visually is represented to us. Mm-hmm. I think Diamondback might have embraced him... So, because I think she wanted a child. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that's his backstory. I don't think that's ever said in the movie at all. Mm-mm. But I think that's what happened. Because mm-hmm. she treats him like he's still her child. 
Yeah. Which is weird. And he sometimes does act like a kid. Like when it's daylight and they're in the hotel room and he's like, oh my God, daylight. And he starts yeah. crying. And Jesse's like, shut up. And he like, <laughs> and then Diamondback's like, no. And she like hugs him. Yeah. I'm like, he still kind of acts like a kid, even though he's an old man. He's yeah. an old man. And he bites May. We know this from the film. He does bite May. He pretends he's a little kid who needs help with his homework. He's so predatory. Yeah, he is. He bites May, and I think he wants her to be his girlfriend. I think that's the. I think that's what he's looking for. Yeah. And she's much older than him in body wise. Right, she is. She's more mature. She's what, like seventeen ish? I would say seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that was four years ago, in terms of the film. Okay. And in the story. Yeah. So when she bites Caleb and she's in love with Caleb, he gets super possessive about it. And he's like really angry. Yeah. And he almost takes sort of like a revenge on Caleb by, I mean, he doesn't know it's his sister yet, but Mm -hmm. he is very attached to Sarah, Caleb's little sister, who's maybe 10. Yeah. Maybe younger. What do you think about that? Uh... It's funny until you reach a certain point in the scene when they're in the hotel room together and he's saying the stuff about Sarah mm-hmm. and then you're it's like a it's like somebody flips a switch and you're like, "Oh, this isn't good" because it becomes really clear what his intentions are. Because at first you're like, oh, maybe he just wants like a companion or something or you like a little sister. That he's old, yeah. But then you're like, no, he probably wants to have sex with her. Oh, yeah. And that's when you're like, oh, wow, this is this is not good. But obviously it makes you feel really gross when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, because I don't know what it's supposed to say, like, about his character, really, other than he's f- creepy. I think that you summed it up pretty well right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... The fact that he knows that she's a child is just, is frightening. And I think that, I think she's trying to say, as an audience member, you're watching this small boy and you're like, oh, he needs a friend. And he's just, and you, and there's no sympathy though. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Maddie. Do you like horror movies? I sure do. Well, did you know that most horror movies are inspired by real-life horror? Really? Like what? Well, take The Shining, for instance. That's based on Stephen King's real-life addictions, or The Purge, which could be our country any minute now. Oh, and The Strangers, which is based on a real-life murder. People should be talking about these things. Hey, Guys. Oh, oh, hey, Producer, producer Michael. Michael oh, hi. Well, I hate to break it to you, but somebody already is. It's you. <gasps> That's right. We are Friday the 13th, the podcast where we talk about horror in real life and horror in media, all from an LGBTQ perspective. Because we gay, y'all. We are proud members of the Legion Podcast Network, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come along with us on this crazy journey, and as always, get slayed. According to Nina Arbach, who wrote Our Vampires Ourselves, she says, quote, Near Dark is full of gratuitous macho slaughter Bigelow's camera relishes in as much as her vampires do. Still, Bigelow handles conventional masculine genres with a sly infusion of parody, unquote. 
Yeah. The really interesting thing about that is like when it comes to Caleb's character, mm-hmm. he kind of seems to be on both sides of the fence here. So he starts out the film being super predatory and like basically harassing May, who is just sitting there eating an ice cream cone like she's not doing anything. Right. She's just like, oh, I don't know what to do. And then Caleb comes up out of nowhere and he's like, wow, you're freaking delectable. And basically just like trying to like weasel his way in there. Right. And the whole entire time, May looks really uncomfortable. Like she's like, <sighs> because at that point you don't know that she's a vampire. So I feel like maybe in her head she's trying to decide if it's like worth it to have to deal with this baloney before basically eating Caleb. Or if she's just kind of like, oh, let's see where this takes me. But like with Caleb, I don't know, May kind of like turns the tables on him. Mm -hmm. So she actually ends up being more predatory than he is. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think maybe. Or are they the same person? Because he Ah, forces her. Yeah. He stops the car, even though she's screaming to get home. (laughs) She's not just like, please take me home. She's like, take me home. Like, she's really upset. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and he's like, turns off his car and he goes, I'm not going anywhere till you give me a kiss. And it's like, you suck. And she's like, fine, I'm going to bite you. (laughs) I'm just going to ruin your whole entire life. Well, and I wonder if like she's sort of showing him like, oh, you want to be predatory? wait till you actually have to be a predator right and he kind of i think gets a taste of his own medicine and he's like oh this is not the type of person that i want to be (laughs) this is not for me i think so i think she sort of is just like all right you want to be a predator this is what it is yeah and he's just like oh dang no i don't want this and i wonder if she's sort of um if we want to think of it in that way, she sort of shows him, like, this is the life that you live as a human. Now right. here it is at night, you know? Ooh. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, it's <laughs> very creepy. <laughs> but yeah, so he can't do it. And, I mean, that sort of takes us to the best scene in the whole film, which is the biker bar. <laughs> so um, I think this scene is is really interesting because it, it sort of shows us that, you know, they are, they're terrible, they are terrible people. Yes. Because <laughs> these poor people have done nothing wrong. I mean, that we know of. But, you know. Yeah. And I was actually waiting for someone in the bar to, like, say something to them or start harassing them because they're outsiders. Nobody does anything to them. No. Nope. It's completely unwarranted. Absolutely. Like, that's why it's so brilliant, though, because it's kind of unpredictable in that way you really don't expect them to, to go ham like that but they do like exactly like severin who is my favorite character in this entire film r.i.p bill paxton oh i know that you were almost like what because you to think he's annoying or whatever you thought he was too loud yes is what you said yes I, get out of here he's the best <laughs> God, he's, wow. He's so amazing in this. He and is a he's a brilliant actor, but this character, oh my god. Out. He's the best character in this whole film. Listen, no. when you bartend and you have to deal <laughs> with clients like him, then you can tell me that you love Bill Paxton's character. I do not love him. <laughs> he's the best. 
All right. (laughs) He, I'm not saying that he's a good person. Like the character is not a good, like it's a bad, Mm -hmm. it's a villain. Yeah. I'm just saying that as a character, this is the best character in this entire film. That's just my opinion. You can like freaking Caleb. All right, fine. I'll be a square. So Bill Paxton is freaking amazing in this in the scene. He yeah. steals this entire scene and he slaughters basically everyone in yeah. this bar scene. And he does it with spurs on his boots, which I think is the cool part. I think that's where everyone's like, oh, snap, we've never seen that before. Yeah. So I think that was like a huge part of it was that his character just obliterates somebody with his boots. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like amazing. I want a pair of those. So this scene is actually like kind of funny, though, in a way. And it's because yeah. Bill Paxton's funny in it and, he tr- and he's scary in it but he freaking has he's burping blood and he's saying things like it's finger licking good and stuff like that and you know he's pushing up his glasses with that famous scene yes um you know so he's being a total doofus this whole time yeah and it almost makes the scene a little bit more frightening because he's kind of there's humor but it's like it's uncomfortable humor yeah because he's like a cat playing with a mouse before Mm -hmm. he kills the mouse tcm.com has a quote from bigelow and she says i wanted this group to be likable even though what they do to sustain themselves is horrific yeah I mean, if you think of really any Disney movie or just horror in general, like people like the villains in horror films. Mm -hmm. And I think that this was part of its success as a cult film was that the villains were so likable. Yeah. Well, also, I think people like to be like contrarians (laughs) Mm -hmm. where like you don't want to really like the good people because you're like, oh, that's so boring. You know what this reminds me of is our little tiff about House, House of, of a Thousand, Thousand Corpses. Corpses. Yeah. <laughs> How I frigging hate the Firefly family so much. And I so think that they're the best. Okay. Nobody deserves to be turned into a fish is all I'm saying. I don't know. I just, it to me, it feels like it perpetuates the fear of outsiders mm-hmm. coming in and like invading your space. Mm-hmm. Which sometimes I guess is valid. If somebody walks up to you and immediately starts threatening you, you're going to be like, oh, wow. Okay, well, probably not. But I don't know. It's just that thing of like walking in completely without reason and slaughtering everyone. I'm just like, wow, that's... There's no fangs in this. None none of these vampires have actual fangs. Right. Their faces don't change into bat faces like freaking Lost Boys. Mm -hmm. They don't ever do anything that seems supernatural except for they get shot right in the scene and nothing happens to them but like there's no sort of like they don't morph into anything different yeah they just are yeah and that's really frightening and bill paxton's character severin bites a guy's neck Mm -hmm. there's no fangs but he does bite his neck we assume he just tears his neck open (gasps) that is the only thing that happens where it's a he does anything vampiric right everyone else's their neck is slashed with a knife or with the spur uh or shot but that's the only victim that they actually bite i mean i guess he chokes him but like he has a wound like a, a bite wound 
So I think that's kind of interesting. But going back to like Vampire the Masquerade, the game, in that game, you have to cover your tracks because if yeah. anything looks like it was like something happened that was like supernatural, you have to hide it because yeah. you can't ruin the masquerade, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's the best scene in the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty scary. But, you know, Caleb maintains his humanity. Yes. Which kind of uh, bleeds into our final thought. Yeah. The ending. <sighs> and all of you horror aficionados know exactly what we're talking about because this ending is has been debated for a long time. There's mm. a cure for vampirism? Yeah. <sighs> How do we feel about that? Um, a lot of people think it's a cop-out. A lot of people hate it. Uh, in fact, I don't think I've run across anybody who is 100% on board with it. Some people felt that at the time it feels like too clean and too conservative of an ending. Well, and there's also no explanation for it whatsoever. Caleb is just like, wow, you can do a blood transfusion with his dad yeah. after his dad rescues him. And his dad's like, yeah. And then it just happens. <laughs> and you're like, what the even heck? And I thought that he was doing it like to, to because Caleb was like, sick or like he needed blood but he didn't want to feed from his family and like he didn't want to hurt anyone so he was basically like asking his dad if he could have some of his blood because is it the blood that makes you undead (sighs) i know (laughs) so i don't get it Catherine bigelow said that she was inspired to create a cure for vampirism because They use bloodletting and blood transfusions in the book Dracula by Bram Stoker. She said, quote, the whole notion of being able to reclaim a victim that way interested me, unquote. Hmm. Which I got into sort of an argument with Luke about it because he thinks that the he hates the ending. He loves the movie, hates the ending. And I was sort of like, uh, I was sort of like on the fence about the ending. And there's a part of me that thinks that it's dumb. And then there's another part of me that's like, what is she trying to say? Well, for me, my interpretation was that, like, maybe you can kind of, like, you have the ability to change your fate and take back your life. So, I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. That's kind of a, a genius concept to put in a film like this, in my opinion. I know not everybody is like... On board with it. Because I think people are like, well, it's a curse. Right. Like, being a vampire is a curse, and you can't go back. Right. And... But it's like, what what do you do to deserve that, really? You know? I mean, Caleb tried to manipulate May. That's true. But May was just trying to help Homer with his homework. Yeah. And she got bit. I do think that Bigelow and her co-writer, uh, Eric Red, were just like, don't lose hope. Right. Like, if you're willing to change, it can happen. Another reason people weren't okay with it was because May sort of loses her powers. Like, she's strong. She's... Is she, though? She's strong, like, literally. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, like, powerful in a sense where she could like obliterate Caleb if she wanted to like that's a power that is taken from her now she's sort of she was already sort of waify now she's even more of a waif now that she's human 
And I think either way, May is cursed because if she stays a vampire, she's a victim of a patriarchal society with Jesse mm-hmm. as the head of this group and Severin, who is hyper fragile, toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah. And Homer is also very possessive and scary. And Diamondback is very much totally she's a part like, of it. Yeah, whatever. Uh, so she's exactly. So she is a member of this patriarchal society. Uh, but if she becomes human again, she loses all of her literal strength and becomes the daughterly wife of Caleb and his father. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting because, like you said, she May is a waif and she's really lonely. And the only time that she like shows any kind of strength is when she turns Caleb or is taking care of him. She's like, like we were watching this and I was like, it feels like she is an animal taking care of her like baby cub because he needs so much help. And she's like constantly having to hunt and feed him from herself yeah like a mother nursing her child yeah so it kind of feels like that's her only good quality is that she's motherly yeah exactly she's motherly towards someone that she victimized yeah and her yeah victimized and her love not like her actual child all in all i feel like she is a weak character like she could have been written a little bit better but maybe there was a point to it. I don't know. Well, I'm not sure what point Catherine Bigelow was trying to make with her, though. So that's actually interesting because Tammy Oler, who wrote an article called Sunlight Through Bullet Holes, she said, quote, in Near Dark, May and Diamondback are equal to the men in their vampire family, but they are clearly part of Jesse and Severin's world not the other way around. Mm. Bigelow's female protagonists are always powerful, but they're often lonely. Yeah. When May tells Caleb at the beginning of Near Dark that he's never met a girl like her, her sense of loneliness seems almost acute. This director, who began her career when women directing action or horror films were even more rare than today, has regularly explored the experiences of women who've had to navigate the worlds of men by themselves. I mean, it's a mirror. Yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what she's trying to show. That is true. Is that even if you're in charge or you seem to be an equal, you're not. Right. And I wonder if her thing is showing that you know, I mean, in Near Dark, she shows it. And then in Zero Dark Thirty, she shows it that these are two different time periods. Women are still trying yeah. to fight to just live a life in a male-dominated society. Well, I can tell you from experience that it happens all the time and it happens like in your workplace, too. Yeah. You, you're you the only wom- woman in your workplace, right? Currently, um, I'm one of three. So out of like hundreds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it is rough, but I don't think that it's too big of an obstacle to overcome. I mean, as long as we have more backings from creatives like Catherine Bigelow who Mm want to talk about it and present it in their films. I think once you start doing that, it's, it's really funny. Once you start doing that through entertainment, the more it becomes like a topic of discussion mainstream. Well, awesome. Thank you, Abby, as always. Yeah. Joining me every week. Mm-hmm. And thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop 
We've got mugs, sweatshirts, and t-shirts. Go to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. Yeah, and if you'd like some sweet extra content in your coffee, head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy, and for just a few bucks a month, you can receive some fun extra content like bloopers from our show, new movie and trailer reviews, and so much more. And don't forget to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. It takes just a few minutes to rate and review our show. It really helps us receive recognition, and it also helps new listeners who are interested in horror to find us. Follow us on social media, Twitter at GoodMorningNan, Facebook at GoodMorningNancy, and Instagram at GoodMorningNancyPodcast. We love you all to death. Have a great morning. Bye.